is the most beautiful among thousands and thousands you I'd like to welcome you to Supernatural Through His Word. I'm your host, Reverend Michael Norton. If you're tuning back into us and we're now on Genesis chapter 8, I'd like to welcome you back. If you're tuning in for the first time, I'm just going to go ahead and drop on in. We've been going through the book of Genesis. We're diving back into the story of Noah and the ark. We're in Genesis chapter 8 where God remembered Noah and the flood has already taken place. And again, why did the flood take place? Back in Genesis chapter 6, the holy ones, the watchers, broke from their dominion and took on earthly wives and conceived and made abominations. And the watchers also brought other ungodly things down to the earth, such as witchcraft, wickedness, sexual depravity. And it tainted God's creation to the point where God literally had to hit the reset button. So many horrible things were brought into it that God couldn't allow this to go on with his creation, right? He had to bring judgment to it, to the watchers and to the people who willfully participated with these actions. So God hit the reset button, brought the judgment, brought the flood, and over a period of 100 years, Noah at the age of 600 years old, um, closed the doors on the ark, and off he went on this 150-day uh, adventure as this cosmic event took place where God globally flooded the earth and Noah's ark is the remnant of the human race and the clean animals and the animals that God wished to save for his creation. That kind of brings us up to speed now to where we're at. We're at Genesis chapter 8 and the floods are to subside. So if you're listening in on Spotify or Anchor FM, I welcome you. But I also have PowerPoints on a video podcast of this on my YouTube channel for Michael Norton. Go ahead and check that out. You can check it out. There's a link on my uh, hosting page of m16ministries.blogspot.com that hosts this podcast. There are show notes there. and There's also links to the various podcasts and to this YouTube video that has the PowerPoints. But you don't really need the video in front of you unless you're one of those people who need the visual and the audio. It's, it's there for you, but I will read through everything. So... Like you said, unless you're a visual person like I am, I do need the visuals sometimes to pick up some of this stuff. So let's launch those PowerPoints, Mike. Ah, there we are. Genesis chapter 8, Supernatural Through His Word. So we did our little recap earlier. What happened? It was the watchers who sexual depravity brought onto the women of the earth. And amongst other things, sorcery and witchcraft they brought with them that, that triggered this reset. So this brings us to now, if you've been following along, we're, we're now in the ark. The floods have already occurred. The floodwaters are now 15 cubits above the highest mountain. So there's about 15 cubits above Mount Everest, right? So it, it's it's some deep cold water here. And, it, you know, it's what are we up 30,000 feet up, 25,000. How high is Everest with 15 cubits? Probably about 25,000 feet up. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a... Uh, supernatural event. It's not a localized catastrophe. It was a cosmic event that was orchestrated by God. This was supernatural. So let's dive into Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. 
But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rains from the heavens were restrained. Okay, let's take a look at verse 1 and 2. So in verse 1, because of Noah's ark, this is called a typology of Jesus. If we're looking at who Noah is, a typology is a form of prophecy, if you will. If we look back at the Old Testament, it's kind of like in retrospect, we look back. So from the Old Testament point of view in Jesus, we look back at the story of Noah. Noah was a typology of a Jesus figure. So Noah, being obedient to God, built the ark, and he had the animals, and Noah's family overcame the judgment through the ark. We have the Holy Spirit, the Rosh in Hebrew, supernaturally forces the waters subside, right? That was in verse 1. In verse 2, God supernaturally shuts down the fountains of the deep and the rains from the heavens. So we had God remembered Noah, right? God and Noah have a relationship, so God remembered him. He just didn't um, throw him in judgment and go, hey, the boat's going to land when it's going to land. Do what you will. Good luck with this. He didn't do that. God remembered Noah, and God and Noah have a relationship here. That's kind of the thing that always transcends down through the, the history of the church, right? God and man have a relationship because God is a loving God. God wants to interact with man, and God did this cosmic level judgment of wiping out creation because he loved a man to protect him. He could not allow this to occur. He could not allow this, this disease of depravity, sexual depravity and wickedness and witchcraft proceed through his creation. So he loved him. He saved who he could, who those who weren't tainted by it. Those who weren't tainted by it, the righteous, he saved. All the beasts and livestock were on the ark, wild and domestic are on the ark. So it says, too, they were with him on the ark. Again, that's another typology of Noah and Jesus. Noah personified as a type of savior, right? The, the, the animals had to go find Noah to get on the ark. And remember, narrow is the gate. We discussed that, right? If they located Noah, these animals, they would have been the remnant. They would have been saved. So all the animals on the ark with him survive, right? Go to Noah. It's an early personification of Jesus, right? Be saved. Be saved through Noah. It's a type typology, prophetic image we're seeing of Noah here. He is like Jesus, but he's not Jesus. It's just an image that's going to transcend through the Bible. Actually, I had somebody reach out to me, I think it was from Genesis 6. It was one of the listeners, and his grandfather is actually Meredith Klein, a, a huge scholar. It's the late Meredith Klein. He wrote some interesting stuff on, um, kind of what we're talking about here, the supernatural of the, the Genesis. And uh, so it's actually his grandson kind of turned me on to this book. It's like, well, I went out and got it. You know, he gave me a link for it. And I'm like, okay, I'll check this out. I'm like, wow, this thing's a treasure trove. So it's, the book is called The Kingdom Prologue. And I think people in the 80s, if they were in um, seminary school or learned to be missionaries, they probably read this. But I'm going to dive into, there's a lot of good stuff in this book in relating to the subject matter we're talking about here. So again, this is Kingdom Prologue, Meredith Klein, page 223. And this section was titled, Cosmological Correspondence. So here we go. In his reading of the Deluge episode as a recreation of heaven and earth, Apostle Peter centers his attention on the way the floodwaters overflowing the earth transformed its appearance into something much like its deep and darkness stage early in the process of creation from Genesis chapter 1, verse 2a. The merging of the waters of the heaven above and the deep below in the flood 
from Genesis chapter 7, 11 and 8, verse 2, constituted a return to the intermixture of the two that obtained when earth was yet a primeval chaos, without form and void, another feature of the correspondence and historical circumstances of this creation and flood at the stage in view in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, and Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, respectively, is the Rosh phenomena of the Holy Spirit blowing over. We have noted this as a striking point in literary parallelism of the narratives, but these phenomena were indeed historical actualities and observed above. The two forms of Rosh were related modes of divine manifestation, Rosh meaning the Holy Spirit in Hebrew. I hope I didn't butcher that, but I think I did. It's R-U-A-C-H, Rosh. Actually, right now, I'm starting to take beginning he- ancient Hebrew, because I want to learn some of this stuff, too. I want to be able to read it for myself when I do these podcasts, going through it. So, yeah, it's going to be a long process through the summer. I got some stuff coming up health-wise here pretty soon, next couple of weeks, where I have to take time off. But during that time, I'm going to dive into ancient Hebrew just to maybe give some edification to the show, bring some class to it, right? Make it stay classy here at <laughs> the Supernatural Through His Word. We're going to learn some Hebrew and ancient Hebrew and, and bring this stuff up to speed. Anyway, back to Meredith Klein. As a sequel to Rausch, over the waters phase of the flood, there were followed a series of incidents reminiscent of the creation history. The effect of the restraining divine action of the flood waters was, according to Genesis 8-2, a reestablishment of the two distinct water sources above and below, a result that matches the work of the second day of creation, described in Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. The next development noted is the emergence of the land. First the mountaintops, Genesis 8, 3 through 5. Then the lower land and the evidence of vegetation, Genesis chapter 8, verses 6 through 11, that corresponds plainly to the third day of creation with the bonding of the seas, the appearance of dry land, and bringing forth the plant life in Genesis chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. So what you can see here is, as God hit the reset button, he removed that which was tainted, that which was defiled, and in a sense, relapsed creation. And the creation's kind of, I guess, creation 2.0, if we want to call it that. It's not really. He saved the animals. He didn't wipe everything out. He, he wiped out what was wicked. So the remnant is on the ark. So this is creation 2.0. He's hit the reset button. And now we're seeing events take place that are reminiscent to Genesis chapter 1 from the initial creation. Does that make sense? That's what's happening here in Genesis 8. Essentially, creation 2.0 is happening with the ark. So let's dive back into our Bible verses. We're back to Genesis chapter 8, verse 3. And the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the water had abated. Verse 4. And in the seventh month, the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Verse 5. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month, In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Okay, let's unpack Genesis chapter 8, verses 3 through 5. Let's look at verse 3. 150 days. Again, we're seeing some sort of um, possible ancient Hebrew numerology. We're going to treat this with a grain of salt. You know, it it, it was possible this was what it was. We're not writing it down, stamping it with our, um, our seal like, this is how it happened. But it's highly possible this is what's going on. So look at the numerology. 150 days is 15 times 10. And 15 is 10 plus 5, which relates to God, right? So on the 10th letter in Hebrew is U, which we call the Y. 
The fifth letter is H. So 15 is YH, Yah. God's signature, right? It's not Yahweh, the full name. It's the signature, YH, Yah. So it's God's kind of stamp saying he made this happen. So in verse 4, God brought the ark to rest. He placed it there intentionally. This wasn't by accident. God just didn't let things go adrift and you're going to land where you land. There was an intention about this. So the location mountains of Ararat are not in Israel. We see another scene of exile going on here, right? The remnant are in exile and they have to journey back. Again, more numerology. We see seventh month, 17th day. Again, the number seven relates to God's holiness and 10 relates to entirety or completeness, right? So verse 5, waters began to recede on the seventh month. On the first day of the tenth month, the tops of the mountains started appearing. A little bit of numerology going on there. These numbers somehow correlate to the, the story God wants to tell us. So in verses 3 through 5 and 6 through 11, which we haven't covered here yet, I want you to keep in mind, corresponds to the third day of creation. What we're looking at going on here in Genesis chapter 8, from verses 3, 3 through actually 11, it's corresponding to the third day of creation with the bounding of the seas and the appearance of the dry land. Again, this goes back to um, the Kingdom Prologue with Meredith Klein's book, uh, what I quoted you earlier in the opening of the show, on page 224. I'm just reading what the scholars have to say about this, right? The deep thinkers. What's going on here? Again, this isn't the stuff that was taught at Sunday school at the pulpit, right? There's some interesting depth to this that, you know, it just wasn't presented. I just want to go back and do this, see the supernatural of this. God absolutely controlled the events of the flood. God absolutely controlled the saving and deliverance of his remnant through the passing of the water, the baptism. Let's return turn to the scripture. Genesis 8, verse 6. At the end of the 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made. Verse 7. And sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Some pack verse 6 and 7 because there was some stuff that wasn't obvious. So again, verse 6, 40 days, right? There was a transition or change. 40 days after what? We don't know. Noah can see the mountaintops. And the other question I had in my mind here after the 40 days, there's some questions here on when the 40 days started. So is this the 40 days where Noah can see the mountaintops or is this after the 40 days of water flooding the earth? We don't know. It's quite possibly it was the 40 days after the water flooding the earth that this time frame is. Trying to frame it for you guys. So verse 7, we see that Noah opened the window in the ark and released a raven until the waters were dried up. This is Noah's way in ancient days of doing what, the depth changing of the water, right? How, how deep is the water? So Noah's testing how far the waters receded. The raven will find a tree. So ravens are basically birds that live in trees. So if the raven doesn't return, the raven found a tree to sit in. So that was the test here. Are we getting close to land? Are we seeing trees yet? So I'll release a raven. If it doesn't come back, it found a tree to, to live in. So let's return to the Genesis 8. So verse 8, Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters have subsided from the face of the ground. Verse 9, But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth, so he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. Again, we're going to take a look at verses 8 and 9 because it's kind of interesting here. Why a dove now? Why not the raven? So 
the dove looks for the ground and not the trees like the raven. So apparently he released ravens. They didn't come back. They found trees. Now how much further has the water receded? Has we, have we found ground yet? Because doves live on the ground. If the dove doesn't return, it may not have found ground, so it's no longer submerged, right? So in verse 9, the dove did not find ground, so it returned to Noah. So according to this test yet, we have trees, we released the ravens, they found treetops, they're okay. But still, no exposed dry land for the doves to land on. So again, the difference on tests here is a dove looks for the ground and not trees like a raven. If the dove doesn't return, it may not have found ground that is no longer submerged. So in verse 9, the dove did not find ground, so return to Noah. So Genesis 8, verse 10, he waited another seven days and he sent forth the dove out of the ark. Verse 11, and the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, her mouth was freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return anymore. Aha! Good sign. So from verse 10, Noah waited another seven days and he released the dove again. After the first attempt, right? So verse 11, the dove returns with olive leaf. Olive trees are smaller than a tree a raven would select. So the ground was still saturated underwater. In verse 12, Noah waits, waits in yet another seven days and releases a dove. This time it does not return. So the dove found dry ground. So we have some dry ground emerging now that the, um, the doves can go fly out to and live on. So Genesis 8, verse 13. In the 601st year, the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked. And behold, the face of the ground was dry. Verse 14, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the earth had dried out. So in verse 13, the first month, that's missing in the Hebrew calendar, it's the month of redemption. Pretty cool stuff here. See, there's some, there is possibly some intentional numerology going on here. I just want to throw it out there just so light bulbs kind of go on. So we have the 601st year, first day of the month, Noah removed the covering of the ark. It settled on some dry land, so not all earth had dry ground yet. So verse 14, in the second month, 27th day, all the earth was dry. It was restored. So the creation reset had been complete. So Genesis chapter 8, verse 15, then God said to Noah, verse 16, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons, and your sons' wives with you. So in verse 16, Let's take a look at some stuff here. Again, we're doing a typology thing on Noah. The context of verse 16 is to Noah. It was Noah who received the revelation from God. And the emphasis is the family was with God, being with Noah. Right? It's kind of like our salvation. we got to be with Jesus to be saved. This is a prophetic typology where it's shooting ahead. And we'll look at in the um, Gospels too where we're reflecting back that Noah was a type of Jesus, but he wasn't Jesus. It was God's trying to tell his story about the salvation and the deliverance was through a righteous man and was somebody that would be Jesus-like, and that was Noah. So through Noah's righteousness and him obediently receiving a revelation from God on how he to be delivered from God's judgment, Noah's family became the remnant of mankind 
of God's creation. Narrow is the gate. Noah was obedient to God. And because Noah was obedient to God, those who were with him were saved on the ark. And that was a small seven other people, right? small number. They were the remnant. And all there was eight, including Noah. So Genesis 8, chapter 17. Bring out with you every living thing that lives with you of all flesh, birds, and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they swarm on the earth and be fruitful, multiplying the earth. Verse 18. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Verse 19. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by the families from the ark. So we're unloading the ark now. Here we go. They're stepping out by their families. So let's take a look at um, recap on verse 17. God gives Noah the revelation, which is primarily Genesis chapter 1, the instructions he gave Adam and Eve in the garden, be fruitful and multiply, right? We're hitting a reset. There it is again on creation. So we're looking at creation judgment, creation remnant, creation reset. Be fruitful, multiply. Let's look at verse 18. Being with Noah, more typology, his family was saved with him. Interesting stuff. So Genesis 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever go again strike down every living creature as I have done. Verse 22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. So we see a transition here in from verse 20. The transition's worship, right? Noah goes out and builds an altar. Clean animals were offered up to God. So it's interesting here, too, because in Genesis chapter 7, we saw seven pairs of clean birds, if I remember that right. I was kind of wondering what that was for, but here they are here. Yep, they were sacrificial. Whenever they mention clean in the Bible, right, it's going to be something sacrificial here, and that's he offered them up. So in verse 21, the aroma was pleasing to the Lord, and we see that man's heart is evil from his youth. Again, the um, the curse from the fall. Man's inherently evil from the, the curse of the fall. From Genesis chapter 3. And we see that God will not pass judgment over creation again. In verse 22, order is restored to the earth, the seasons, the day and night, and God controls the climate absolutely. What does that mean? Churches can't be preaching climatology because it's a lie. God controls it. There can be hot days, there can be cold days, there can be hot seasons or cold seasons, there can be wet seasons or dry seasons, and it's not because of climate change, it's because of God's will on what he wants done with the climate. And that's what we're instructed right there in verse 22. After all, he's the one that flooded the earth, right? We've never seen that. We've never seen that. It was God's will to flood the earth, and we've never seen it ever again because he said he promised he would never do it again. So let's look at Genesis chapter 8 in conclusion and some final thoughts in Genesis 8. Again, Meredith Klein writes in Kingdom Prologue from page 224 to 225. He writes this conclusion on Genesis chapter 8. Conclusion. Whether or not we accept a geographically universal interpretation of the extent of the flood, we must recognize that the whole central movement of history, as traced in the Old Testament, was interrupted by the flood. 
That much at least is needed to account for Peter's cosmic exposition of the event in 2 Peter 2, 5 and 3, 6. We start talking about the sins of the watchers and God flew because God flooded the earth because of the sins of the watchers, right? That is the cosmic exposition of the event. Okay, return to um, Meredith here. Beyond all other pre-messianic symbol prototypes of the final coming of the kingdom through redemptive judgment ordeal, the flood anticipatively suggests the cosmic dimensions of that last judgment as a world cataclysmic necessitating recreation. In his reference to the flood, Apostle Peter's main interest in the event is an instance of divine judgment ordeal, which serves warning of the final day of the Lord that is coming upon the world. 2 Peter 3, 10-12 But he does not fail to observe that the typical world dissolution will, like its deluge sign, be occasion of a recreation. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness, 2 Peter 3.13. Yeah, so it was kind of interesting. Here we just wrapped up the flood story. The floods have subsided. They've gotten off the ark. And there was a lot of stuff I picked up this go-around that really weren't taught from the pulpit or taught at Sunday school. I wouldn't expect this to be taught at Sunday school. It's actually a lot deeper than we could, you know, we're better off just with our coloring crayons, coloring the pictures of the, the giraffes and the elephants on Noah's Ark and the little happy Noah there, you know, with the big round eyes. But what's happening here is we introduce the typology where in the Gospels are going back and reflect that Noah was a type of Jesus. He wasn't Jesus. He wasn't a supernatural Jesus, but he was a type of that through him, Noah, the animals had to go and get on the Ark through Noah. Noah's family was saved through him because he was a righteous man, and God chose him to be the righteous man for the remnant. We'll see several other figures from the Gospels, we we'll call typological, prophetic individuals. Another will be Exodus with um, Moses, and another one will be Enoch, too. That a couple of the um, apostle authors, it's very subtle, and as we touch upon these and go back and forth, we'll see it. But keep in mind, this is a typology, right? So... Yeah, so God promised never again to flood the earth. This was interesting. It was a cosmic event, and it was stirred up by the sins of the watchers, the holy ones. The holy ones who decided to sin against God, form a horrific transgression, come down and mate with his children on earth, their earthly daughters, the daughters of men, and brought them sorcery, and brought them sexual depravity, and brought them wickedness. And like we said, from the giants, there was cannibalism and everything else going on, man. It was horrible. It was so God cannot allow this to go on. There was also um, defiling of animals. You know, we could only wonder what that's about, but it was also drinking the blood of the animals. So there was a reason why the animals had to be wiped out, which is interesting. Everybody's going, why do we wipe out the giraffes? Why do we wipe out the... There was something going on. They did something heinous. And that is why we have angels in chains before the judgment of Satan right now, right? That we know that Satan and his angels are going to be judged. It's coming, the day of the Lord. But we have a few select divine spiritual beings who broke the ranks and are already being judged with no account of redemption, no possibility of redemption. And like the Russell Crowe movie, these guys were so bad, they can't plead for help. If they did, it's not going to help. They actually did the Book of Enoch. Remember, they tried to get Enoch to plead with God, and God goes, no way, not going to happen. They're locked away forever. They blew it. So that's our account of Genesis, man. Interesting stuff. Very interesting. So next time we're going to dive into 
Genesis chapter 9. Right. Hey, that's how it works, right? Well, Mike, in Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, and now we're doing 9. Yeah, next time, the supernatural through his word, we're doing Genesis 9, and we're going to cover something interesting, the nakedness of Noah. Right? We've heard that one. So we're going to unpack that one. What's that about, Mike? Yeah, it's getting pretty um, sultry here, right? What's, what's going on here? So anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. Again, you can find the show notes and the various forms of broadcast and the YouTube podcast on m16ministries.blogspot.com. It's sitting there, and this is under Genesis chapter 8, the supernatural through his word. Hope you guys found this material interesting, and um, I always find it fascinating, the stuff when you unpack this, like, what the heck's going on here? Because it's not what was taught at the pulpit. That's what's so fascinating about this. That's why I enjoy, like, starting to learn the Hebrew, too. What does this mean? What does that mean? And I like listening to the rabbis, too. A lot of times I listen to the rabbis. I got a lot of material from rabbis on this one, and I'll put them in the show notes, too. Because they're amazing to listen to and piece it all back together. Anyhow, until next time, till Genesis chapter 9, folks. Love you guys. Have a great one. God bless. Shoot.